Yeah, and I think that Hannah's been able to successfully discuss topics from a humorous perspective that a lot of people have struggled with in the past because people just turn off way too quickly when you start talking about these things. But if you can pop it, pop some humour around it, it makes it palatable long enough to listen and then you've actually been able to understand it so it's then digestible and understandable. So it's a, um, that's sort of when it, it, yeah, it was such a game changer for me because it was just like, oh, comedy can actually do a lot more than just have a few laughs. <laughs> yeah. It can actually tell really difficult stories and really hard stories and change people's opinions and connect people in a way that most other forms can't do. This is Reignited, where together we will meet interesting people who have a curious message for the world. They'll tell us about their experiences so that we can all reignite our lives. Hello, we're live here at the pod booth and I have a very special guest today, Kate Burr. Um, I'll introduce her in a sec, but this is going to be part of our podcast series where we talk to really interesting people who've got a message for the world. And I actually can't wait to hear what Kate's got to say today. So Kate Burr, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. It's fabulous to be here. Yeah. So you're a com- comedian, a MC, and a speaker. Yes. Um, so we'll get into how you came to be all of those things. Yeah. Um, but before we get started, you've chosen three symbol cards. So I'd love I have. you to... Um, show us what you've chosen and why you've um, decided to do that to introduce yourself. All right. Well, I don't actually know why I did it either, but I have got the, I'm hoping that's a rainbow, otherwise it's a big smile. It can I'm be sure. whatever you want it to be. <laughs> We're going to go with rainbow. I think just because um, even like rainbows only come out when it's crappy weather um, and everyone just gets so excited to see a rainbow. And I think I still do even now, even though I'm very old or not a child anymore. So I think rainbows just because, um, they have, there has to be really crappy conditions for something amazing to come out of it. And I think that's a really good, uh, I think that will lead on to this one, yeah. which is about, um, this is a little flower. Uh, so that's just about growth. And um, for a flower to get to that stage, there has been a whole heap of stuff behind the scenes uh, before you actually get to that. So I think that that's pretty cool. Am I doing this right? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. You're good. <laughs> so we've had a rainbow that has um, some strong metaphoric content there where, you know, it needs to go through some stuff to be bright and um, happy and stuff with something you like, but also that sense of growth that things don't just grow straight away. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, the last one is a treasure chest because I just think there's treasure everywhere. Uh, you just have to look for it and sometimes it's locked up and if you can unlock it, then you get to enjoy the treasure. Yeah, so that's a, actually a really good start for for where we're probably going to head. Oh, um, good. So, <laughs> Phew, I did that very right. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be, um, I'm going to ask you some questions and we'll just see where the conversation goes because I know um, Kate and I have met on quite a few occasions and quite often end up in a really deep place um, just philosophising about life and exactly. everything that it has to offer. So we'll see yes. how it goes. So let's go back to when you decided to give comedy a go. What, what was happening for you and why? Oh, well, so it was back in 2001 was my uh, foray into the stand-up comedy world. Um, I had always watched Hey Hey It's Saturday as a child, just thought, this is amazing, shut up everyone, the comedians are on. Um, And (laughs) so uh, back in 2001, I was living in Port Lincoln, um, went to, I was in Adelaide for work, saw a flyer on the side of a cafe counter that said Triple J Raw Comedy Competition. And I went, why not? Let's give it a go. So I hand filled out the form. This is back in 2001, before <laughs> the days of internet. Hand filled out the form, posted it in the letterbox and instantly regretted it. What did you? <laughs> I was yeah. like, I want to get that back. What have I done? Yeah. Back um, in the days where you actually posted things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that, as the only form of communication. Um, so posted it off, freaked out a bit, forgot about it, got a phone call a couple of weeks later saying you've got your heat on in Adelaide in a couple of weeks' time. So I then had to prepare something. And I combined it with a work trip, which was good, so in Port Lincoln. Um, And, yeah, so then I was getting dropped off to the airport for my husband. And I, um, so, because, yeah, the meeting was the day after that I was going over for work for, got dropped off by my husband. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm doing stand-up comedy tonight. Thanks for the lift to the airport. Slammed the door and ran into the airport. (laughs) So you hadn't told anyone you were doing it? No, I hadn't told anyone I was doing it. I was like, what have I done? Um, so he just like had this massive look of shock on his face and he was like, what? And I'm like, see ya. And then 
he could I didn't have a mobile at the time, so he couldn't ring me when I got to Adelaide and go, tell me what's going on. So he had to wait until I rang him <laughs> afterwards. But I landed in Adelaide, rang a friend from uni and said, what are you doing tonight? And she's like, nothing. I'm like, I'm doing stand-up comedy. Do you want to come? And she's like, yes, I am there. So we um, went to the co- the club. The guy before me was awful. And I was like, I'm not going to be that bad, I'm pretty sure. So I had this absolute false sense of courage when I got up there. <laughs> Did my first ever stand-up set and I got laughed at, which was good. And it wasn't that bad. And that sort of just gave me enough of a bug and I was like, right, I'm in. Let's yeah. keep going. So do you remember what it felt like just before you went on? Uh, it was sheer absolute terror. Like, <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And then as soon as I got that first laugh, it was like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And I think it's probably, I've never jumped out of a plane, but I imagine it'd be very similar to that where people are absolutely terrified of jumping, but then enjoy it so much when they're doing it. Yeah. So talk us through what happened then. You know, how did you develop your career as a comedian? Yeah, well, so after that, I got back on the, or did my work meeting the next day and went back on the plane to Fort Lincoln. (laughs) Just did nothing. Uh, I think it was a couple of months later, I was like, I really like this um, and signed up for a comedy school in Adelaide uh, with the late Dave Flanagan. And um, so I would fly over, always coordinating with work. I was lucky I had a meetings in Adelaide all the time. So I'd come over, did a six-week comedy school in Adelaide and then, um, yeah, just sort of started on the open mic circuits after that and just dabbled and kept going. And so did that fear and that terror continue? Yeah, I think um, it it's always there, but it's nowhere near as big of a rush as it used to be. So, um, or, or the pre-stage freaking out. I still get a lot of um, enjoyment when I'm on stage and getting the laughs from everyone and uh, just having that really good connection and interaction with the crowd. Um, and yeah, so uh, like it's it's still a little bit nervous, but not so much anymore. Yeah. And I look at comedians and I think they are so clever and creative and view the world in a different way, but also the courage it takes to actually get up and put yourself in the spotlight and be totally exposed, what's that feeling like? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think there's, I like that you talked about the word courage because I think that everything has to be underpinned by courage. You're never going to feel just 100% comfortable going out there, but you need to feel comfortable enough. And I think that once you've worked out that you've got a gift or a message that you can share with people, then you just have to have enough courage and feel comfortable enough to get out there and serve the others. Because it's not about you at that point, it's about your audiences. And what happens when it falls flat? Uh, You just awkwardly laugh and (laughs) sneak off and (laughs) try not to take it too personally. How do you not take it too personally? Because I'm assuming, you know, it, it could cut deep. Yeah, in the um, initial stages, it was very, um, very painful to have a dud gig and you just want to go home and cry and never go on stage again. And then after the pain subsides a little bit, you're like, oh, we'll get back on it. We'll keep going. Uh, But now I am also very conscious of what types of audiences will appreciate my style of humour. And I'm not speaking to everyone. And I think that was a good lesson I learned through business training and market, like around marketing and stuff. It's like, if you're trying to market to everyone, you're marketing to no one. So it's the same with comedy. It's like, if you're trying to be comedian to everyone, you're not going to be anyone. So I, um, since becoming a mum, don't necessarily do the, so I've got a lot of humour around parenting now. I don't do the clubs, uh, the local comedy clubs anymore, because they're full of young people who have weekends free and hangovers on the weekend and they can they've got a lot more freedom they don't quite get my humor so I don't even try and put myself in those positions anymore yeah and I guess that's a really good lesson in as far as that we can't be everything to everyone yeah um that there's sort of you know in all of our experiences whether it's business friendships everything um there's always going to be people who you don't fit with exactly and it's about navigating and finding that crowd for you Exactly. And also just not to take it personally is like, I know I, I can't be loved by everyone, like as much as you'd like to be. <laughs> it's like, you're not everyone's cup of tea. So you just stop trying to be. And there's so much freedom in that and so much more calmness in that as well, I think. And it's just like, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it gets me thinking, and we've had quite a few conversations around the whole idea of humour and what it is and why 
is it important to be funny? Well, I sort of, when I was starting my career, I just loved the feeling that it gave me. Um, after I had my daughter, I started up a comedy school, uh, sorry, a comedy club for mums in a tennis club. <laughs> and we'd, the idea was you'd uh, leave your baby, feed your baby, go out to the local tennis club for an hour, have a laugh, then go home and nobody's missed you too yep. much. It fits into your lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and what I realised at that is that humour is such a good way to relieve stress and it's such a good way to connect with others. So I was getting like talking about the challenges that I had as a parent and then all the audience were laughing at exactly the same challenges. And that's when I started to realise that people can have a very good shared experience around humour and it can have that really good connection. And it also um, can take a lot of the pain out of topics that have been too hard to talk with, talk about in the past. So for example, my uncle's auntie, uh, no, sorry, <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. My husband's auntie, her son uh, passed away in a hit and run accident when he was 15 and I'd known her for about 20 years and she'd never discussed her son in front of me. Um, she came to the Three Stuff Mums comedy show, which was um, a group show that we did for the Fringe and there was a bit in there that I did about how challenging it is to take a kid to the petrol station and how they want to get all the lollies off the shelf and um, you're trying to like contain them while you're paying for something. And that was enough of a, she had such a good laugh about that, that that was enough to then share a story about her son going to the um, the supermarket and how he was trying to get all the lollies off when he was at the supermarket. And the way she really lived that story and the shine in her eyes, and she just was like so joyous with that experience. And it was like, wow, we have never spoken about her son and now we're speaking about it in that context. So, so that real connector. Yeah, it's that real connector. And it, um, the humour, I think, just takes away the ugliness so we can look at things long enough and we can understand them and appreciate them and, uh, yeah, helps us get through. And also see situations that are quite stressful or heartbreaking um, and put a positive spin on them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not necessarily about putting a positive spin at the expense of the negative experience, but it's sort of balancing out the the effects of the experience so that we can see both sides of the story. Yeah, so, yeah, using humour yeah. <laughs> to really connect and, and have a look at things. Exactly, yeah. 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 So talking about looking at things, what how what's the lens you look through? Like, you know, when you walk down the street, like do you have that, oh, this is funny sort of um, aspect happening or what's the lens that? Yeah, so I don't necessarily look through a lens of what is funny. I just pay attention to a lot of stuff. And, um, yeah, like I, er, like everything is in fi like very detailed and like I'm always like looking at something and going, wow, what would that look like from a different point of view or how does that work? Trying to find the funny bit. In it. And a lot of the stuff, it just, you see it, it go, yeah, gets looked at and then discarded. Um, and then sometimes later down the track, things will pop into your head and you go, oh, yeah, we'll do something on that. So <laughs> Yeah, because some of the funniest things or the things that are the best observations of life are actually the most mundane exactly. as well. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and I think that that's the bit because humour works really well when it's unexpected. And so if you're talking about something so mundane that you wouldn't normally discuss, that's where people have got that shared experience and then they can have a laugh about it. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you do lots of coaching in how people can use humour in their talks, in their boring topic training type <laughs> things. Um, what do you think the key is to humour? Like you talk about it as being stealth humour. What is that and why is that important? Yeah, so when I'm, I'm working with uh, like speakers or leaders, uh, business owners who are trying to use humour to communicate their message, because I think that um, it's interesting nowadays looking at shows like The Project where it's current affairs with entertainment. So I think people are now looking for that. Things need to be entertaining as well as informative. And so you putting humour around your message is, I think, a really future-paced way to go with things. So when um, we're trying to communicate a message with humour, we need to make sure that it lands and relates to our audience. And so... Using stealth humour doesn't mean that we are like, hey, three men walk into a bar, by the way, have a look at my product. It's let's put the humour in your message so that it sounds like 
you wouldn't like it doesn't sound like you're trying to be funny but it actually is funny and if it doesn't get a laugh it just sounds like you're talking yeah so it's a, a risk-free way to do humor i think so you're not <laughs> so you're not standing at your presentation and needing to feel like a stand-up comedian yeah exactly yeah. and i think it's also um one of the things that i the big tip that i have around putting humor into presentations and your message is don't tell jokes because jokes have a 50 percent failure rate because <laughs> what happens if you think about what happens when you have a joke is that you start to announce that you've, you're about to say something like three men walk into a bar and then instantly the crowd's like, oh, she's going to tell a joke. Is this going to be funny? And that question always has to be answered. Is it funny? And if it is funny, congratulations, they laugh and you win. But if it isn't funny, you have just left it all hanging out there. And the other problem with that is that it puts the audience in a confrontational situation because if nobody laughs, one of you is wrong. The audience is wrong because they didn't laugh or you're wrong because you didn't tell something funny. And that's a really high risk thing to do. So yeah. so using stealth humour is basically you just say things that sound like you would say normally, but you've engineered them in a way that will hopefully get a laugh. Yeah, definitely. And we've talked privately, obviously, about <laughs> uh, the fact that behind the humour there can be lots of different things happening and how humour can sometimes cover up some of the things that are happening. And, oh, yeah. you know, Hannah Gadsby has been brilliant in actually just calling it yeah. um, and talking about self-deprecating humour and how she refuses to do that now. Yeah. How does that sit with you? It's been really interesting watching Hannah Gadsby's journey. If you haven't seen Nanette, I highly recommend you get onto Netflix and watch that. Um, but Hannah's, um, I actually was overseas when she did her Nanette show in the Adelaide Fringe and had so many comedian friends say it's amazing. So I actually flew myself over to the Melbourne Comedy Festival to watch the show. Um, it had changed a little bit from the live version to what ended up on Netflix, but I remember watching that show. Um, what was interesting with Hannah is that we started around the same time. So our first, um, my first Fringe was in 2007 and we were both nominated for Best Newcomer, and she obviously won that. Um, and we've had a very similar comedy journey. Obviously, hers has <laughs> her yeah. uh, its success um, success curve has gone a lot higher than mine. I don't think she was expecting <laughs> that either. <laughs> no. um, but when I uh, went, so I went over to Melbourne Comedy Festival, watched this show, bawled my eyes out the whole way through it, bawled my eyes out walking out the thing, and I think I kept crying until I flew home the next morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, what was happening there? Yeah, so um, what happened is she was talking in her um, live show, I think she talked about it a little bit in um, the Netflix special but not quite so serious, is that she was saying that she did humour to feel like she had a voice. Um, she didn't think that she was listenable, worthy until unless she had a microphone in her hand. And the way, so that was basically her validation of her existence sort of thing. And then also um, using that self-deprecating humour was the way to get the laughs. What she realised over time is that self-deprecating humour was actually quite damaging to her sense of self, which was already pretty low because of the way she got into it. And so she says, I'm not going to do that anymore because it's not um, humility, it's humiliation. And I'm just like, they're going, oh, my gosh. <laughs> she just sounds like she's described bits of my life down to a T. Yeah. And so that was when I realised I was in comedy for a completely different reason than I thought I was. Yeah, what was that reason <laughs> that you discovered on that day? And obviously emotion comes up because something's been touched. Yeah, I think it was just like I didn't actually think very highly of myself and um, had used humour and stand-up comedy as a way to get myself validated um, and, and listened to and heard. And it was just like, oh, wow. And so at that point um, I had been doing a lot of humour around parenting and how shit it was to be a parent. It was then I realised that laughing about how shit it was to be a parent wasn't actually fixing how shit it was to be a parent. Um, and so that completely changed my whole viewpoint on what comedy could do, but how also how it can help other people. So Yeah, that rule that there's a story and a message that can come out. And even in Douglas, um, so Hannah's new um, comedy yep. set, um, she really touches on that thing of being real and um, having a story and um, yeah. what's really happening 
Yeah. As well. Yeah. And I think that Hannah's been able to successfully discuss topics from a humorous perspective that a lot of people have struggled with in the past because people just turn off way too quickly when you start talking about these things. But if you can pop it, pop some humor around it, it makes it palatable long enough to listen. And then you've actually been able to understand it. So it's then digestible and understandable. So it's a, um, that's sort of when it, it, yeah, it was such a game changer for me because it was just like, oh, comedy can actually do a lot more than just have a few laughs. <laughs> yeah. It can actually tell really difficult stories and really hard stories and change people's opinions and connect people in a way that most other forms can't do. Yeah. Yeah. So you went and saw Nanette and obviously it, it touched something. What did you do with that information and that realisation that, oh, I'm – it's different to what I thought of as to why I'm doing comedy. Like, what do you do with that? Well, I went home and just basically chucked out all my old material. <laughs> I was like, we're done with this sort of stuff. Um, and then rewrote a Hannah Gadsby-inspired show um, for the last year's Adelaide Fringe called Mum by Name, Not by Nature. And that um, talked about some pretty heavy topics around how I hated being a mum. I didn't hate my daughter. I just uh, put the record straight on that, but I just didn't really enjoy the whole responsibility and work and thanklessness of the whole thing and the way it had all been set up and have used my time off stage where I was working on things to actually sort of unpack some of the reasons why parents struggle so much with, or some parents struggle so much with things. Yeah. Yeah. how did that feel in, the, in comparison to what you'd done previously? It, it felt um, really different from my perspective from a fulfilment point of view, if that makes any sense. So um, I felt like uh, so the interaction with the audience and the laughter and stuff was still there, which was like, feel good. Yeah, lucky. <laughs> And what was interesting was there was laughter there where I wasn't actually, like, I hadn't written the laughter in, but people were still laughing. Um, and I'm like, oh, clearly this is a shared experience. Yeah, so you got some bonus laughter <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah, but um, so uh, having that laughter, but then also just going, oh, okay, this has taken comedy to a whole new level for me. And I think that's sort of really driven the, the funny on purpose work that I do now about you can actually use humour to craft your message and get that so much further and remembered so much better as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's go back to the whole idea of laughter and sometimes there's something behind it when com- when comedians write jokes and what's happening behind the scenes. Can you just talk us and give us a little bit of a hint into some of the things that may have been happening for you? Yeah, well, um, lots of people talk about the benefits of laughter. So there's like all the um, psychological things um and the physiological things. So like it fills your body with endorphins and it reduces your stress hormones and improves your blood flow. And it like does all these amazing things to your brain and all your areas of your brain fire up at once. So you can remember things quicker and understand them longer. And people talk about all the benefits of laughter, but they don't actually talk about the power of laughter. And the power of laughter is where um, laughter can deflect and devalue and diminish what's actually going on. And I think that's what I, like if I have a proper solid chat, solid, yeah. solid look at myself, that's what I was doing. I was using laughter as a thing to hide all the mess that was going on in my life at that time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that chaos around parenting um, and being a business owner at the time, it was all just like, yep, have a bit of a laugh about it and pretend it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I was on stage getting the laughter and that instant response, it felt amazing, but then I'd step off the stage and feel ordinary, like just terrible. And it got to the point where I couldn't, the laughs on stage weren't making up for the awful feelings off stage. And that's when I, um, yeah, had to step away from the comedy stage for a couple of years and just get all that sorted. Yeah. So how did you get sorted? Because I I mean, obviously I'm a therapist and I'm going to advocate for people getting help. (laughs) But, you know, that realisation that, you know, this was serving a purpose and it's not doing that anymore. Yeah. How did you sort through that? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of money on therapy. Yeah. <laughs> um, was in, uh, in and out of, I think I started with a couple of counsellors. They weren't quite doing it, so that I ended up with a psychologist. Probably should have done some art therapy because yeah. being creative probably would have been a better fit for me than just sitting there talking about it. 
Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that. And I eventually um, came to the realization that comedy has got me into this. Comedy has to get me out of it. And so that's when I started to unpack the what does comedian what do comedians do? Like they get lots of laughs on stage, but what does what creates that laughter? And I realized that comedians are very conscious. They're always looking at what, what's happening. They're very curious to look at why and from what angle and just unpacking everything. And then they get creative with how to f- put the joke together. So I went, right, I'm going to p- apply that to my life. So I got really conscious about what was going on with my life, really curious as to why that was there, and then creative on how to fix it. Yeah. So yeah. using what comedy gave you and to help you yeah. work through it. Who would have thought? I yeah. had all the tools in my tool belt. I could have <laughs> saved myself many thousands of dollars. Yeah, hindsight, hey? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and what's been really interesting is that I'm still working through that and still unpacking it and trying to resolve it. Um, but last year got the diagnosis of clinical depression and that had been there for almost 10 years. And what was interesting is how powerful the laughter was at masking all those symptoms because I had seen, I had sought professional help in those early stages, but it was never picked up. Um and probably it wasn't picked up by a lot of people around me either because I was just like, oh, yeah, this is just hilarious. And she's having fun. We're all having fun. So it sort of just completely got dismissed. <laughs> so it was like masking it completely. Yeah, totally. And people, did people see you as, you know, Kate the comedian 24-7? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and they, when I, like I've shared with a few people and now everybody gets to know that I've got clinical depression, but most people just go, oh, as if you do, like that's wouldn't, you're the last person I'd expect to have that. Yeah. And quite frankly, I'm the last person that I'd expect to have that too. <laughs> yeah. And so when people say that, what does it do for you? Does it make you want to hide it even more? Or? No, it makes me want to get out on the bandwagon and just really explain this to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think that mental health is so misunderstood and so um, people are terrified of it and there is so much stigma around it and people don't want to talk about it and there's so many things wrong with it. And so I've been using my conscious, curious, creative uh, hat around mental health and, yeah, I just really go, okay, there is such a need for more education around this. Yeah, so how do we do that? You know, we have certain days of the year and, um, you know, there's a lot more mental health awareness than, you know, when we were children. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the let's just hide everything. Um, so how do we move forward with that as a society? Well, I think we need to have a better framework for the whole discussion around it. So I had depression for 10 years and didn't know it. Um, I knew more about breast cancer that I have never had than I do about depression that I've had for 10 years. And I think that if you look at the breast cancer model, it's a really fascinating model of what they do um, that is so much better than what mental health is doing currently. And I have had a chat to a couple of um, professionals. There's, um, a fa- there's a foundation at the Adelaide Ho- Royal Adelaide Hospital and he said, I sort of explained what I was thinking to him and he's like, yeah, breast cancer was like that 30 years ago. People suffered alone. They didn't have the, um, the help around it and it's much different now. Um, so, for example, with breast cancer, I know that I need to check my breasts every month for um, changes. Um, if I have find any changes, then I need to go to the doctor. I possibly will get a mammogram, possibly will have a biopsy, um, possibly will have a lump removed, possibly have my a mastectomy, um, and then right down the track, there'll be no hair, no boobs, and about to die. Yeah, so there's a, <laughs> there's a trajectory and a pathway. Yeah, my yeah, my understanding of uh, depression was you're in a mental hospital with a straight jacket in a coma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this, the, I had no idea what the treatment was, no idea who the things were. Like, but you know, when people say maybe you should see someone, I'm like, I don't know who someone is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hopefully, that's changing a bit now. But like, I literally had no idea what a someone was. Yeah, and that's a really good point because, um, and sometimes it's about actually having that conversation with someone in the first place that, you know, things aren't right, what do we need to do and yeah. see someone? Who is that someone? Yeah, you know? but it's even like what are the symptoms or that, are, that are not right? Mm. Like I um, remember back in the early days um, just after I had my daughter 
um, going on the Beyond Blue website all the time. And I was like, well, I'm not lying in bed, bawling my eyes out. I'm not crying every day. But what I failed to understand was there's two sides of depression. There's one which is like that I can't do anything and I want to go to bed. And then there's the other side which is very agitated and exceptionally angry. And I got the exceptionally angry, furious one but didn't realise that was that. Everyone just thought, oh, yeah, just being a bit difficult and being a pain in the ass." Yeah, or, <laughs> or I'll just channel it into humour. Yeah, and yeah. Ch- channel it into humour, yeah. And so I think there needs to be a lot more um, discussion around the warning signs and the and possibly even checking. So um, just like I'm in a routine every month with my breasts, it's like what's the routine that I need to be in every month with my head? Yeah. What do I need to be tracking from a personal perspective to go, oh, actually this is going downhill a lot quicker than it normally is or it's, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. One of the things that I constantly ask in my corporate workshops and things on wellness um, is how are you and how do you know? Um, you know, I got that from a fellow art therapist, yeah, nice. Amanda Moffat. She did her PhD on it. And I think it's a really good question because everyone has different signs uh, and it's not like we just go, okay, because you're being a bit grumpy, that means that you've got depression. You know, it's different for everyone that, yeah. that the wheels might be falling off. Yeah. And I guess it's, yeah, working out what they are. So how do you think we do that? Well, I was just going to say, even with that question, it's allowing the space for an honest answer. Mm. So I don't know how many times I hear, oh, how are you? Good? Excellent. And then there's no space there to actually tell the truth. Um, and so when people... Um, say, like I remember just recently there was a police, some Facebook page for police and there was an announcement that one of their officers had passed away from suicide Um, and they said, oh, we just wish that there was an environment where people, he could have felt like safe to talk about it. And it's like, if you're asking the question, how are you good? That's not a safe environment to talk about those sorts of things. And so being aware of what is helpful for people who are suffering mental illness to be able to explain those and have that safe place to talk is really, really important. Yeah, and I think going even further than that is actually when you ask the question, listening exactly. rather than giving advice or let's just fix it. Yeah. It's actually going, okay, well, what is actually happening for you? Because one of the best things for people who are not doing so well is to be heard. Exactly. And that's what comedy did, yeah. you know, was <laughs> exactly. to bring a voice. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we really need to watch. Um, but how much, and, you know, I could rant on about this forever. Um, <laughs> and this is where a lot of our conversations yeah. have got in the past. <laughs> yeah. This whole thing of that we, we get discounted constantly yeah. um, about how we are doing. And even when we do say we're not doing well, it, it gets smothered or it becomes about the other person or yeah. a fix-it sort of mentality where it's, they need space. And that's where we're lacking a lot in awareness around mental health as well because I think when people go, they hear that somebody's not doing well, they instantly think they have to be the person who fixes it. So if you, like, and this is where breast cancer comparison is so much easier because it's like I understand breast cancer, I don't understand mental health, and I can use these two to to help me um, understand it. If somebody comes to you and says, I think I've got a lump in my breast, you wouldn't go, oh, let me just get my scalpel out and dig around and let's have a look at it. You would go, you need to well, make... hope not. <laughs> you hope not. <laughs> oh, gosh, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> you would say, okay, we need to get you to the GP to get a referral to get that checked out. So when somebody says, I don't think I'm doing that well, it's like listening to and hearing what they have to say. But the next port of call is not you having to unpack that and solve that for them. The next port of call is you having to help them get help. And finding the person who the someone. Is, is an expert in that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, And I think that's where people just go, I don't want to talk about it because I don't know how to fix it. It's like, well, you're not meant to fix it. Like it's a disease. It's an illness. It is exactly the same as whatever you would go to in, like any other physical illness you'd go to the doctor for. You don't have to unpack it for them. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really, really unbelievably important message. Exactly. Is that there are people who know how to handle this. And even as a therapist, you know, if there's something that is beyond my depth, um, you know, I refer to other people who who know the information and are able to to do the best for that person. Yeah, and just like you'd have a common cold when you just go, oh, I need to go to the doctor's, get a couple of days sick leave and then maybe get some antibiotics. 
or I've got full raging pneumonia and I need to be in hospital on a drip. There's like you can go at any level and any stage with mental illness to the GP and go, this is what I think I've got or this is what I'm feeling. Can you help me out? Yeah. And also that message of um, that people can still be high functioning and have depression behind that, you know, that they can still do a day's work that doesn't have to, sometimes they may not be functioning at full capacity or things like that, but it doesn't mean that then they're in bed all day either. Like there's this, you know, um, thing of let's look after each other and actually genuinely seek help as well. Yeah. 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 Do you have any other things on that? You said you could rant about or get on your soapbox. (laughs) Well, this is your chance. (laughs) Okay. Um, The other thing that I think is really missing in the mental health space is calling a spade a spade. Yes. So we have Breast Cancer Foundation, we have breast care nurses, we have everything is breast cancer, breast cancer, breast cancer. Um, We have a couple of days in our Australian sporting calendar. So there's a big day in the cricket, there's a big day in the football. Everyone wears pink. We all show our support for people with breast cancer. We understand that it's an illness. We understand these people need sympathy and care and we get the job done. Yeah. With mental illness, we have, and like, I don't want to discount the work that these charities are doing, but we need to really have a look at why we're calling it Beyond Blue, why we're calling it the Black Dog Institute, why we're calling it the Panda Association, why are we not calling it Depression and Anxiety Association or whatever. Like I think we need to start calling them for what they actually are. (laughs) Yeah. Because then it just becomes part of the vernacular. It becomes part of the conversation as opposed to, oh, the Black Dog Institute, oh, we can't even talk about it. It's so horrible. Yeah, so even the connotation of it is don't talk about it. Yeah. And then um, days where we're meant to be raising awareness, like something like Are You OK Day, has become a little bit of a spectacle for people who – Um, just want to feel like they're doing something, but they're not actually doing it in a way that's helpful. And so this, I feel like I'm breast cancer, give give (laughs) a plug for breast cancer today. But um, (laughs) for me, asking, are you okay, is the same as saying, can I check your breasts for lumps? It is an intimate, personal question that should never be publicised on Facebook. (laughs) And you need to ask somebody in private, in a loving space where there is time for them to say no. Um, asking, are oh, you okay? Ha ha, this is a fabulous time um, on Facebook. Nobody's going to write what they're actually feeling No, on Facebook. And so it's, it's being personal about it. Yeah, and I guess it's about using that awareness and, you know, what they're standing for is that people do <laughs> ask the question and it's not just on September the 12th, yeah. you know, it's every day. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I love in my rooms is when the doors closed and the mask can come off and people can talk about and experience and express exactly what's happening because yeah. it's exhausting to hold that mask on sometimes and people don't ask how they are. Yeah, it's like just pretending that we've got it all together because it's not a safe environment to show our vulnerabilities for whatever reason. And so, yeah, it's holding it all together and then you finally can take the mask off. And if you look at um, the stats around mental illness and the how much it's increasing at the moment and then all the very stressful things that people are going through at the time. So I think like if you look at divorce rates or um, deaths in the family and just all the sort of life things that people have to deal with, if People say yes. Actually, it's probably a very small minority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if you can actually genuinely ask yes, uh, say yes, you're probably in the minority, I think. But yeah, because most... life is hectic and busy and it's the full spectrum of emotions and experiences. Yeah, and we need to be connected in a world that's becoming more disconnected and that's the bit where it's making it, I think that's where we're seeing the rise of things is because people are just becoming more disconnected just out of the way we're living. Yeah, definitely. I can, I've got a couple of things going through my mind around um, mental illness and how it's reported. Like I think about that young AFL footballer who had a suicide attempt, but they've avoided the word suicide attempt constantly. Um, or there was an interview on TV with Guy Sebastian about his new song and it's about his friend who suicided, but they avoided the word constantly and then just had the lifeline number come up. And it's like people need to just say it. Just talk about totally. it freely or on Survivor. It sounds like I've watched TV all the time. <laughs> I do watch lots of TV. Um, 
last night I saw there's a lady who was part of the tsunami um, and she had to jump off this massive structure into the water um, as part of the competition and she froze and she was you could see she was having flashbacks. She was completely in trauma and the rest of her team were on the other side. So one guy just jumped in the water and swam over to her to help her and she didn't end up doing it because they at least they recognised yeah. that she's in trauma and they were actually yelling out to her, we don't care about the challenge, you know, you're amazing, la, la, and I was like, isn't that so good that a TV show has actually shown that, Yeah, that it actually doesn't matter about what else is happening, that her mental health in that moment was the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's really fascinating because then it be- just becomes part of the social context and the, and the conversation anyway, like, um, I remember just recently one of the local radio stations did a um, backyard garden makeover for somebody who had breast cancer and had been um, getting like suffer it like in treatment and stuff for the last twelve months and had had a hard time and her backyard had gone to rack and ruin and it was like wow you're never going to hear people go oh Kate's been suffering from depression so we're going over there to do a house makeover and it's those sorts of things very subtle in context but it's like oh people with breast cancer have a hard time oh okay they need help oh okay we give them sympathy okay that makes sense and so when you see stuff like survivor just dealing with it like it's an actual thing which it is <laughs> it normalizes it and then people get skilled up on things without even having to search for it so like just how I am skilled up on all the stages of breast cancer treatment and what I need to keep myself safe or what I need to check on, it just becomes part of people's general knowledge without even thinking about it. Yeah. So it's certainly a conversation that's, that needs to keep happening, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah. when people say, oh, you don't look like the type of person that has depression, I'm just like, exactly. That's why we need way more yeah. discussions around yeah. it. <laughs> and that, and podcasts that, like this. So yeah. And that thing of, um, you know, what do you do to help? Um, you know, go and do their dishes or exactly you know, what the stuff that's getting out of control. <laughs> exactly what you do with somebody for broken leg. Yeah, yeah. You don't ring them up and say, how's your leg going? You ring them up and say, would you like to get out of the house? Yeah. You ring them up and say, can I bring you some food? Can I clean your house? Can I help out with the garden? Is there anything you need help with at the moment? You don't yeah. have to actually go and fix the broken leg or the the, the fix the illness. You just go, okay, let's go. Do something. Yeah, let's connect or, you know, be of use and help. Yeah, and um, just the simple act of going out with somebody for a coffee, the conversation will come up if it needs to, but some people don't need to talk about it all the time. They just want to feel like they're part of something um, and that they belong, which is, yeah. I think, one of the basic human needs anyway. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that thing of still inviting people, even though they're saying no because they're not going for a reason. Yeah, and yeah. not getting shitty that, oh, gosh, they're not going again. It's like, okay, no worries. And yeah. just genuinely happy to see the people if they do turn up and don't give them a hard time if they don't. Yeah. Or go and, <laughs> go and watch Netflix on their couch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we've, okay, it's such a rich conversation, I think. Is there, what do you think, apart from the fact that we should be using mental illness like breast cancer? Yeah, go breast cancer. You've done it really well. <laughs> um, what do you think is the key message that we need to get out there? Oh, there's, I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think just being patient and kind to people in general is a really good thing. And um, I love the theory that people are doing the best that they can. And if that's pretty ordinary, then they don't deserve judgment and hatred and anger. They probably need compassion and understanding and support. Um, because I don't think people genuinely go out to be an idiot or difficult or hard work, but the circumstances that they end up with, they may be feeling like that at the moment. So I think just be nice. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing that I heard you talk about is call it, you know, tell them, ask them, are you okay? Yeah. Or you could phrase it any way you want. (laughs) Um, But also that thing of calling a spade a spade. Yeah, yeah. And this is what it is and this is what we need to do. Yeah, and um, if you have somebody in your life that has mental illness, um, get on the bandwagon to help support it. Like 
people who are suffering from mental illness aren't the ones who have should be organising the rescue parties, but at the moment they seem to be the ones trying to organise the rescue parties and they're just exhausted from life. They don't have extra capacity to try and explain it to others. So if you are well and you have experience with mental illness from a loved one, just talk about that openly with everybody else so that it becomes part of the conversation and it doesn't become this scary stigma thing that we shouldn't talk about and whatever. And if yeah. you're on the news, report the suicides, yeah. please. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, you know, not the complete reporting, but that, but that whole sense of calling and using the words. Yeah, but we're, we report on the car accidents and the death toll every mm. night on the news and I don't know why that one gets mm. all the glory. Like, why aren't we saying this many people died from mental illness today? Yeah. This many people died from car accidents. They're both as preventable as each other, but nobody's talking about one of them. Yeah, that's a very good point. Something I'll ponder for a little while, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the most useful? Like when you say the rescue parties, what do you mean by that? I think it is creating a place where it's normalised and okay to talk about and not dismissed. So it would be nice to be able to say to somebody, I've got clinical depression and they just not laugh awkwardly and go, ha, 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 and then walk off yeah. <laughs> because that's um, not a nice feeling. Um, yeah, thanks for making me feel even more isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think that a lot of the times people are feeling very disconnected and very isolated or that's certainly how I feel sometimes and to not have that understanding and awareness makes it really even harder because then it's like you have to justify your position and deal with your emotions as opposed to just dealing with your emotions. Yeah. 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 So it's it's actually dealing with them. Yeah. Now, uh, that's what was going through my mind that I forgot. Um, Carrie Bickmore, one, um, I saw an interview with her and she was talking about the fact that going to a counsellor or seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist should be just like going to the doctor or the hairdresser, you know, exactly. and talking about it in, in your household like it is n- not taboo. Mm. It's not something that needs to be hidden, um, that I'm just getting my health in check. Well, it's really interesting because um, a lot of workplace um, wellness programs, they provide confidential counselling. And it's like, why are we doing it confidentially? Yeah. Like, why can't we just, like, you can possibly have the choice, but it doesn't have to be um, advertised as confidential counselling because it sounds like, oh, nobody's allowed to know. We should just, like, keep this one, sweep that right under the rug. Mm. Um, because that, it, yeah, like it makes people feel alone. It makes them more isolated. It exacerbates the problem a lot of the time and yeah. nobody's ever going to get better. <laughs> yeah. Well, you would hope what happens in the counselling session is confidential, but, you know, yes. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, but not like the whole, we'll just, we're trying to, like, we'll just, oh, yes, you're going to a meeting. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that we should all go and see somebody to have our own space as, as just a checkup. You know, we do that with our car. Exactly. We don't just go when something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's about how do we have a tune-up. And I think that having that const- or that regular checkup then gives you a much better self-awareness of how you're travelling mm. um, so that you know that oh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good, I know that I'm feeling pretty good, I think I'm feeling pretty good but I'm actually not feeling good. Um, sort of like when you go to the dentist, it's like sometimes you go, oh, yeah, my teeth are fine. And they go, no, they're not. No, you've got all these feelings. <laughs> um, and so it's that, yeah, I think having that checkup's a really good idea just to check in with yourself and just go, yep, travelling okay or maybe need a tiny tweak because a quick tune-up is a lot better than trying to reset everything after yeah. complete and utter devastation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's sort of a bit, we can be a little bit preventive to exactly. live as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So before we finish up, and we've been on quite a ride yeah. with, with humour and how, what that's Feels like it's all been me, very serious. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think life is about? Oh, God. I know, actually, I do know the answer to this. <laughs> it's not a test, by the way. You can say whatever you like. Um, I think from the, uh, I heard a fabulous saying um, from a gentleman, Alistair, just recently that if um, there's no point going through all this shit unless you're going to compost it. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Um, cool metaphor. Yeah. yeah. So I think for me is, what was the question of what's life all about? 
I think what life is all about is actually overcoming whatever challenges you have in your way to be able to reach your full potential and serve the world. So one of the things I realized um, from a performing arts space and doing lots of fringe shows is that everybody has their place and everybody, no matter what style they are, has value to share. Um, So I grew up in a private school where I thought you had to look a certain way and dress a certain way and behave a certain way. Um, And I understand now that that was probably more of a, it's easier to manage everybody if they're a certain way and trying to accommodate for 30 kids differences and individual skills and talents is probably quite challenging for a teacher who's also trying to teach curriculum. So, but once you get out of school, it's like, you need to be 100% yourself and bring your skills to the world so that this, the world can be a better place. And if you're not able to do that because you're trying to behave in a certain way or look a certain way, you're actually ripping off yourself, but you're also ripping off others. Yeah. And do you think that's where that, that sense of self-worth and that comes when you're authentically yourself and finding your place in the world? Totally, totally. And um, difference, I don't think, is celebrated as much as it should be. Like, I am really glad there are people out there who care for the sick and the elderly with the nurses and the medical staff and the doctors because I don't have a single single um, preference to do anything like that. There is other people out there who love numbers. I'm not a numbers person. I don't mind numbers a little bit, but (laughs) not not to the point where like we're just going to do the whole thing. Um, There are other people out there that are creating beautiful artworks for our walls. There are other people out there that are teaching our children. Um, And the world wouldn't work if the world wasn't different. But I don't think we celebrate the difference enough because it's like, thank you for doing that. Now I don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to look at it too, because we think of difference as being the extreme, Yeah, but it's actually about what your interests are, who you are, what you get, what floats your boat, you know, how it all works together. Yeah. And I think rather than going, oh, you're, you don't like the same things as I am, you must be wrong. Think about that as a good thing. Like in our household, I am not a fan of Turkish Delight chocolate at all. <laughs> my husband and my daughter love it. And I'm like, well, that's really a good thing. We're not like, we don't have to all like the same things because now I get to eat all the good chocolates and you have to eat the dud ones. Yeah. And they're like, yes, we're going to eat the dud chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like there is enough in the world and enough abundance for everybody. But if we try and all be the same, then that all, um, that abundance stops. Yeah. Like, because we're then all competing for the same things. But if we're all different and we're all stepping into our true selves, then there's enough for everyone. Yeah. And the box of favourites would look pretty boring if it was just Turkish delight. <laughs> It'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it would be unfavourite. That's what yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We could talk for hours, um, which we have in the past. Um, so, Kate, thank you. It's so enriching and wonderful to hear that you know your life experience has brought such a wealth of knowledge and um, you know the really important message that you have which is what's happening behind the humor yeah thank yeah. you. yeah, yeah. So thank you so much it's been a hard hard journey but it's like now I get to share it with everyone and yeah, share my definitely. insights <laughs> yeah and I think you know what you talk about with the model of mental health and what we have it's really exciting to think that we as a society need to develop that yeah and yeah. it's it's only a social media hashtag campaign away. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to lead it? I don't know what we can call it. Baby. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll brainstorm that. If anyone's got any ideas, let us know. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. For show notes and more information about my guests and to get in touch with me, visit igniteartherapies.com.au.